0: Ooh. I keep wondering when that intro is going to sound, you know, like dull to me, and it, it doesn't yet. And if it does to you, I don't want to hear about it. Um, so uh, I'm getting texts. Could we check the live stream, make sure that we're, we're running? Uh, if, if you've got to interrupt somebody, by all means, interrupt me on a Sunday with the live stream. Don't do it to Tim. All right, well, uh, I was planning to transition out of what had come before, but now I'm, I'm in the weeds, so let me just say I'm calling this sermon How the West Was Won, but when I say that, like, I, I have vague memories of a Western that kind of goes on forever uh, with episodes of pioneers and stuff, and that's not really what happens in our passage today. But the most important thing was it was the pioneering spirit in the old movie. And in this case, you have to remember what this series is about. The Acts of the Apostles, yay, by the Holy Spirit. And by the Holy Spirit is kind of a big deal in how this expansion of the church happened in a relatively fast timeframe, given how unlike anything else, Christianity was. And so here we are looking at a passage that's a, it's part travelogue, it's part, I don't know, people being frustrated by uh, not getting to do what they want, and then meeting somebody and, and something happening. And it, it felt at first when I read it like a bit of a mixed bag. And if you have the same experience, don't worry, We're going to try to sort it all out. We'll see. Okay, so what I walked away with from this passage after studying it and thinking about it and saying, how can I apply this to my own life? I did not see any visions, so I am not giving you that. What I experienced was, hey, this is very much a passage about how we do make decisions, how we seek God's guidance, and what we do when it happens or doesn't happen. And so I was thinking about decisions that people make. And many of you know I have a, a student, my son is in college currently, my daughter is a high school senior, and so she's going through that process. She's like, applied to a bunch of schools. She's in the process of finishing the rest of the applications. There's all kinds of hoops to jump through, uh, primarily for her, but her mom and I get dragged along uh, to a couple of things here and there. And I'm having these flashbacks to making my own college decision. And uh, it was not easy. And it was difficult to know on what basis to make the decision. And I remember being a 17-year-old and going, God, I want to I go to college where you want me to go to college. I did not have a vision then either. And the reality is that we don't often get a vision about such things, even though they feel like the most monumental decisions in the world. So as we look through this passage, we're going to see what the text says, and then we're going to make another pass and try to look at how we might apply it to our lives. But I want in the back of your head to think about what decisions do I face where I would really prefer somebody to show up and tell me what to do. There we are. Let's start with verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Now, last week we heard about Paul and Silas going through Derby, Lystra, Iconium, they join up together with a young believer named Timothy as they're going through the region, and they're encouraging the existing churches, they're passing along the decisions that the the elders and the apostles in Jerusalem have made, okay, so they're giving news and decisions. This week, the ministry team is going to start moving north, and they meet with this surprise development because I don't know about you, I didn't see this coming. They were kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the Word. The Holy Spirit doesn't let them preach the gospel in Asia. Doesn't that seem unlike what you would expect the Holy Spirit to be up to? This means yes, this means no. Okay. (laughs) not just me then, thanks. What exactly this means, how it looked, how they experienced it isn't really made clear. All we know is hush, right? And this is one of those things that bothers me sometimes in scripture. I would like to know just a little bit more, okay? I would like to know some details. Now, one of those details that I would like to know is, Jesus at 10 years old, what was his favorite food? Scripture is silent on this issue, but if you think about it, the creator of everything, who is living in his created world and experiencing the cursed version since sin has entered the world, that fish doesn't taste like a fish should taste. Wait, would fish even be the right food if there hadn't been sin oh no, I don't know what's going on, why can't you just tell me? He liked figs. I don't know, that would have made me happy. But that's not the intent of the authors to add every little piece of detail. And this leads me to something I want to just give this to you as a a principle of scriptural interpretation. And that is, it's pretty simple, We're not trying to recreate the events as they happened as though if we had footage, we would understand what was going on. Instead, we are trying to understand what the author is trying to communicate to us. In this case, Luke, powered by the Holy Spirit to give us a message that's gonna last for thousands of years after Luke writes it. And the way we summarize this is we're looking at the text not at the underlying event. So text, not event, is the idea here. And we don't know how they were kept from preaching. We don't know why exactly either. It's often the way with God's plans, it seems like, not just in the Bible, but in the history since the Bible was written. But Paul and his companions, unlike me, don't appear to worry about this. They go, oh, we can't preach there, So they continue on, verse seven. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Okay, and here's where we need the the map. The map, the map, the map. Um, I know, I know from experience that your eyes glaze over when you see this. And I'm so sorry that this is the best map that I could find. But you'll see that the red arrow goes up and, and Syria, the green down there, Antioch, that's where they head out. And then, oh, they're, they're coming along, and Lystra, there's sort of a dot right above the red Pamphylia, Iconium, we heard about that last time, and then they start going up, and that big yellow thing is Asia, and they wanted to go preach in Asia, and denied, blocked by James, so they start heading up north, and you'll see the big purple thing on the top, Athenian Pontus, they were headed for that going, this is the next place that we can try. Okay, not here, then how about there? Again, we don't know why other than it's God's will. And Luke, who's writing this account, says the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Now, this runs counter to what we expect, but Luke continues on with, with the group, writing about the group, undeterred, he doesn't seem bothered, he's not rattled, he's not anxious. They continue on in the direction that hasn't been blocked. Verse eight, so they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. If you look at the map, the map, the map, the map, you'll see that they basically made a loop around Asia and Troas is at the top, sort of, on that little thing dangling off the end near Mysia, okay? They've gone all the way around till they get back home and the roosters crow and the birdies sing, and I blame high school square dancing that that's what came to mind. <clears throat> do they still do that? Nope, praise God. All right, what do they do now? So far the places that they've wanted to go have been blocked in one way or another. So. We read on, dear friend, verse 9. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. This guy is begging that they would come to this other place. Verse 10, let's just hit it. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You think you think you got a, a vision of somebody in an area that hasn't been shut down because God wants you to go there? Oh, okay. The thing I'd point out in verse 10, uh, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. We were concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This wasn't Paul had a vision and said, this is what we're doing. Paul had a vision, told the group, and together they said, this is what we're doing. Now, Forgive me, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and that was not how words from God worked. Somebody told me what the word from God was, whether it contradicted Scripture, whether it made any sense or not. And I am happy to grant that I was in an aberrant situation. It wasn't normal. It wasn't the best version of this. But what I love here is Paul's an apostle. He had a vision, and together they consider what it means. Who. Okay, there's value in community even when it's just your little boatful. Okay, so they concluded that God had called them to preach the gospel to them, to the Macedonians, and forgive me, I'm probably going to call it Macedonians. We know actually it should be Macedonians because the sea is actually hard. If you can do that comfortably, knock yourself out. That's my disclaimer. Verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day, we went on to Neapolis. Okay, we put out to sea and sailed straight. It's hiding here in the English. But what, what people who know Greek better than I do say is it's evident that Luke knew his sailing terminology. He, he, he was a traveler. And he knew what was going on because it's a nautical term that basically means They're getting after it. They are hauling. Now that they know where to go, now that there's a door that's not closed, they are going. They are moving. In fact, if you calculate the distances, they covered 156 miles in two days. And so we surmise that the sea must have cooperated. And you can look later in Acts, way over in Acts 20, to see that the return trip On their way back to Troas took five days, so, you know, sometimes the wind is in your favor. I wonder if God helped them be faster. I don't know. Verse 12, from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. Okay, Philippi, not a big city, actually. Uh, It was nonetheless a significant city in its region and actually in the Roman Empire. Now, it was named for a famous Philip, Philip II of Macedonia, and Philip, we know him a little better as the father of Alexander the Great. Heard of Alexander the Great? Okay, more nodding than hands, we'll take it. Uh, That's all fine where it became more significant to the Romans happened, oh, I don't know, right after Julius Caesar was assassinated. So Julius Caesar turns Rome from a republic into an empire, and he's got a bunch of friends, there's lots of politics, and some buddies kill him. And then they flee, and they flee to near Philippi. And so the forces of these Uh, Republic-defending people, uh, who were Brutus and Cassius, are are here, and the forces of the empire pursue them, and what do they do? They engage in battle, and Mark Antony and Octavian, the empire team, win. So think Star Wars, we're in episode five, okay? The empire strikes back, (sighs) Now, what happened after this is that veterans from the military of Rome were settled in Philippi. It was sort of a gift that they were given because this was a place, there were gold mines nearby. Well, you don't want your happy veterans working in a mine of any kind, but here's a nice city that you can live in, and you can kind of Romanize it. It's going to be a good place for you. Now Thessalonica was the official, the the capital city of Macedonia, but Philippi was in this way an important city. And just as an aside, I threw in Octavian's name there, but you may know him a little bit better because it's getting to be that time of year. After he then took control, dealt with Mark Antony and became Caesar himself, he was Caesar Augustus, indeed. Okay, so Closing the the loop, we'll be in nativity in no time. It'll be great. All right, they've arrived in Philippi. Yay! Not a big city, but an important city. Yay! And maybe for a few days they get their bearings after a long journey. Even if that last part was pretty fast, it has been a long journey all around this province known as Asia. Maybe we can tell one thing they did by reading verse 12. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. So they expected and found a place of prayer. On the Sabbath, they went, where? Where would you expect them naturally to go on a Sabbath? Synagogue. That's if if you're a Jew, even if you're believing in Christ, following Jew, At this point, you go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. So why didn't they? Well, probably there was no synagogue. Probably there were not 10 Jewish men. Sorry, that was how they determined how many you needed to to have a synagogue. Uh, 10 men was the, the count that the rabbis had said, that's a minion, not a little yellow guy, but enough, a quorum, a big enough group to actually have a synagogue. So we get this other picture of Philippi, tons of Roman veterans, very few Jews. Interesting. Okay, the practice for those who were Jews or those who were not, but who worshipped Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was to establish a place of prayer by a river. And we know in these days, if you have a city, you have to have a river because you have to have a water supply in and unfortunately out as well. So the team, knowing there was no synagogue, comes and talks with the women who are gathered there. Okay, all this distance that they've traveled, there's no synagogue to start from, which is their practice, all this distance that they've traveled, and there seem to be no men at the Riverside Place of Prayer, all this distance that they've traveled, they don't head out in search of an alternate location where the men gather. No, they talk with who is there. And don't misunderstand Paul's teaching in other contexts to mean that he doesn't think women are worth his or others' time or effort. That is not the example that he sets. Don't misunderstand the point of the team going out in the first place. They are here to speak to those whom God brings, those they can connect with. And they've started with this group of women, among whom one takes center stage, verse 14. 14. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So Paul speaks, God opens, Lydia responds. Now Lydia is a place name, and I hope that's not confusing to you. She's Lydia, place name from Thyatira, also a place name. It might help to remember that uh, Tim's got a son whose name is Boston, which is a place name. It's also allowed to be his name, right? Okay, great. So that means that we've got a situation where she's got two names and they're both place names. They're talking with a live person who's named after an ancient kingdom. More interesting than that is that she's this dealer in cloth. Okay, purple cloth. Don't get me caught up in trying to recreate the event. We want the writer to determine what we care about, right? Okay. Okay but there are some impressions about this person that would have been easier to draw in Luke's time because of the cultural uh, presence that they had. They understood what was going on in other places a little better than we do removed 2,000 years and a continent from it. She's not out with a husband on the Sabbath, so maybe he's an indulgent pagan. He allows her to have this side hobby, but he's not gonna be part of it. That's possible. More likely, she's a widow, but she's got a daytime job. She's doing all right. Thanks, Dire Straits. Purple dye in the ancient world was a really expensive thing. It was painstaking to obtain. One process I read about uh, involved catching scads and scads of sea snails, particular kind of sea snail, and then you let them rot, So it's this vile smelling process, and then you're extracting stuff out of them, and it sounded miserable. Uh, There's also evidence that in Lydia's region that there was a root that was used that's mostly used for red dye, and it was unclear to me on what basis they said purple, but here we go, we're left to speculate. So instead of doing that, we say purple dye. Who wears purple when it's so ridiculously expensive to obtain purple dye? What was that? Royalty, Royalty, exactly. So probably not just wealthy, but powerful are the two things that are required. And so she's in a high-end trade involving the highest echelon of people as far as the region is concerned. And this lady is the first follower of Christ in Europe, so far as we know. What does the first believer in Europe do? Verse 15, when she and the members of her household were baptized, okay, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us, having received the message, she and her household were baptized. I mean, you want to talk about running fast. Like, I'm surprised Luke didn't use that same verb about the sailing really fast because that's they are all in. When she says, if you consider me a believer, she's saying, uh, those who just baptized her, so we'll say Paul did it. Paul just baptized her. Did he think she was a believer? Yeah, that's why he baptized her. You following that? The baptism didn't make her a believer. She believed, and therefore, Paul baptized her. And she's saying, because you consider me a believer, And I was trying to think of an example of this kind of use of if, and the one I came up with was after Karen and I got married, uh, I told her one day that I felt weird kissing on church property, not at the wedding, that was for whatever reason, fine, but in the months after. And she would say, if we're married, kiss me. So we'd be at church, and she'd say, if we're married, kiss me. And of course, I would kiss her. And then I got used to it, and it was good. But <laughs> I'll spare you the demonstration at the moment. But let me just say, she didn't mean, I don't know if I'm married, so, so prove it by kissing me. Said, so because we're married, prove it by kissing me. All right, here's what FF Bruce said about this independent new believer from his commentary on the book of Acts. When she was baptized together with her household, which would include her servants and other dependents, as well as her family, she gave practical proof of her faith by pressing the four missionaries to become her guests. Women in Macedonia were noted for their independence. Moreover, under Roman law, which governed life in the colony, freeborn women with three children and freed women with four children, were at this time granted a number of privileges, including the right to undertake legal transactions on their own initiative. In other words, they weren't dependent on their husbands to own and manage property and things like that. And we don't know the details of her household, but we know that she responded to this ministry team by creating a place of Christian community where there had been zero. Isn't that amazing? And the place where people could get connected to God moves from the river to somebody's house because community on this continent of Europe is now being established. And it's going to expand in unexpected ways, but we'll talk about that a bit next week. And by we, I mean Tim. So for now, I want to go back to the beginning and just think a little bit about you and me because here we are. You and I are here, everywhere we go in fact, there we are, as uh, I recall from Buckaroo Banzai, and you and I face decisions about our lives that range from the mundane of, where are we eating after church, or am I taking a nap this afternoon, to the more, or this morning, uh, (laughs) or the more impactful questions like, where should I go to college? We'd expect that to be impactful in some way. Who should I date? Yeah, okay. And Siri's got an answer, isn't that wonderful? (laughs) The fact that a voice told you to do something or came up with an answer doesn't mean it came from God. Just ask my devices. Okay, how should I handle this difficult friendship? Should we talk about Bruno? Should I stay in this job? We could keep going on and on. You've got your own list of stuff that you'd like answers to. And the thing I know about talking about how to know God's will is that people eat it up. It's the single thing, if I had to pick something that people want to hear about, it's that. And my problem is uh, Paul spends no time, as far as I can tell, seeking to know what God's will is God lets him know, and the way that he does that in this passage is because he's got ongoing communication happening with Paul, and so Paul says, I can't preach the gospel here, and I don't know what the mechanics of that are. He says, we can't enter there, and I don't know what the mechanics of that are, and don't ask me what the vision looked like, but he knew something. He knew something, and he knew it was from God, and his group agreed. It's interesting. So I don't want to give you three steps to hearing God. This isn't clickbait church, okay? Get guidance from God with this one weird trick. We don't actually want that if we think it through. Because the God that we serve wants to be an ongoing, deep, intimate relation with us in a relationship that will allow us to know his will to the extent that we need to know it. And then he wants us to operate in the freedom of following him and valuing what he values because we have a relationship with him. So it all hinges on this relationship. So let me go a little quicker. Let's look at Paul's decision-making process, not because I'm Paul, not because you're Paul, But because he's the guy in the story who hears some things clearly from God, he had a plan. His plan was his identity. I preach the word of God to those who need to hear it. And our passage doesn't show him waiting for a month, asking God to show him what he should do or where he should go. He's got a plan. He knows perfectly well that God can redirect him. Is it what he always wanted to do as a child? It is the opposite of what he always wanted to do as a child But he is fervently, passionately, energetically, life-abandoningly pursuing it. And this works because Paul's pursuing this life in a way he was never free to before Jesus encountered him on the road and he surrendered to Jesus. And I kind of said that following Jesus made Paul more free, and that kind of is complicated. Let's take a crack at Romans 8, 5 through 9. Those who live according to the flesh, this is the natural way we live, have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is deaf, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, he writes to the believers in Rome, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So guess what? Without following Jesus, your one option is to do what your flesh desires. Super! And not just your body, notice— Though that's obviously got a strong draw in our lives, the mind is governed by the flesh and its death. He says, I want to live my way in life is a perfectly reasonable way of thinking about things unless you really want to live and experience peace. I have good motives, we tell ourselves. I do good things, we tell ourselves. But Paul, who thought he was being righteous by persecuting Christians, says, nah, nah, that's not how it works. I can't polish up my own behavior, rationalize my own decisions, and pretend that that's what God said. Okay, second thing about Paul, he really was pursuing righteous things. He was running hard to share the good news of freedom from sin and death in Asia, in Bithynia. And God directed him away from Asia, but he didn't stop pursuing the objective God had given him. Gentiles need to know and follow Jesus, so bring him the gospel. So he just took the course correction, no matter how far it ended up taking him. Okay, Bithynia, he gets directed away. He continues on. He doesn't stop. He doesn't wait. He doesn't get sulky saying, you said I was supposed to do this, and I'm going to sit here until you make it possible. He kept going in the direction that he could. And Paul didn't have an angel appear. Did you notice that? Because he doesn't need to be commanded what to do. He just needs to know where to go. And a Macedonian, oh, I went that way, standing there saying, please help us. That's all the motive he needed. He knew what the right thing to do was. He just needed the direction and God provided that. Okay, Paul was all about this ministry because he had what he described in the Romans passage. His mind was set on what the spirit desires. He had to give up things of the flesh. So, how do we live like Paul, given that we are not Paul? Here's what John says, uh, alternate voice, right? 1 John 2:15 through 17, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now, we naturally desire things that have a shelf life that's like seconds long, minutes long, at most years long, and they're going to disappoint us, but God's will always brings us life. So let me suggest some things that we can be praying about for God to show us, and it's a a list of five things, and I I hope that it will be legible um, because we're going to be sharing a time of communion shortly, and I... I sort of want us to have the opportunity, in the quiet of that, to say, God, where am I falling short of the good things that you want to put in front of me that I can chase after? When I was looking at colleges, I thought there was a right decision and a wrong decision. I didn't know that everything about my life, regardless of where I went, was going to be deconstructed and rebuilt in a whole different way. I didn't know that, I didn't expect that. And so I thought that a college decision was gonna make all kinds of things more straightforward. And it kind of did the opposite. And God was lining up a complicated pool shot, you know, uh, in my life at this time. Uh, Things that came to fruition much later. And so that resonated as Paul's trying to go one place, no. Trying to go another place, no okay, I'll head here, and oh, I hop from there to where I want to be. God's got a plan, so harmonizing with God is what we want to do, and here's, here's the thing about seeing God's will. So, I'm old enough that though I've been wearing corrective lenses since seventh grade, yeah, some of you look sad too. Uh, Though that's been the case, I now have not just the contact lenses, but if I want to see further or in the dark, I've got a pair for that. And now, like, I can see Joe Ferranti's face, and I couldn't before. But if I want to see something up close, I have another pair of glasses that helps with that. And it's how I always dreamed of looking, right? And the reason that I say this is oftentimes we have an unreasonable expectation. And our expectation is that there is one right thing to do and we have to find it and God's got to bless it or who knows what will happen. What if if God's will is like our contacts and most of the time we're going to follow him And then when he needs to correct in one direction, he's going to, because we're in relationship with him. We listen to him as he speaks in his word. We get counsel from other people. And if we need a different vantage point on something, he's going to provide that as well, because he's the one who's going to correct our view of what it is that we need and who it is we are to be. And that's what I'd like us to walk away with, is this understanding that it's not Here's, here's the thing to click on, and it's the answer. It's here's the relationship to get deeper in, because he's the answer. Uh, Helena and the Tams, if you don't mind coming up, I'm going to close us in prayer. God, I am so grateful that uh, we can chuckle a little bit while seeking your presence, I am so grateful that it's possible for us to be in relationship with you that informs every decision that we make, and yet you allow us some autonomy to make those decisions as you equip us. And I thank you for your power to set us straight when we need a little more direct intervention. Would you fill us with a passion for you and your love May Christ's kingdom come in our hearts and our wills so that we can be the kind of people who make a home for other believers and for people who will be believers. I pray that in Christ's name, amen.